0: Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. This is Kevin Young and I am joined by Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen. Good to have the band back together as we talk about various and sundry items related to life and or books and or everything. As always, grateful to Crossway for the excellent resources that they produce, and at least one-third of this triumvirate whom they employ. And for the many fine books, and, strange as it may be, the book they wish to highlight today is called Men and Women in the Church, a short, biblical, practical introduction by me. So, uh, what's a non... Self serving, non awkward transition into talking about this book. And Colin and Justin will chime in. Maybe they'll have some questions, but I have some questions for them as well. And we're going to use this episode to talk a little bit about the book, but I don't want it to be just a commercial for the book, but talk more broadly about the state of complementarianism and what we're seeing and what we think the church needs to be doing. So let me give a little bit of background on this book and then I'll let Colin and Justin jump in. So this is called men and women in the church. It's just coming out as we speak. The trucks are driving across the country, unloading just pallets of books yonder. And uh, this Goes back to a little-known book that I wrote many years ago called *Freedom and Boundaries*. I actually, started writing that my first pastoral charge in Orange City, Iowa, and wrote started writing that then in 2003, 2004, and of course, uh, Justin wasn't returning my calls at the time to get anything published with Crossway, so I self-published it. It came out in 2006, and since then that self-publishing company went belly up. Thankfully, I have the copyright, and so in the last few years, Justin and Crossway have said, "Hey, can we can we publish that?" And uh, hoarders had it on Amazon for a hundred dollars. I'm sure they didn't sell any at that price, and I have like the last fifteen remaining copies, worth their weight in gold. They are, uh, but I kept. Putting off Justin and saying, "Well, I I I do want to do that, but it seems like just a reissue of the book, uh, 15 years later isn't going to work because a number of the issues are different and a number of new issues." And so I kept putting off until I had time to try to revise some of it, and so I worked on that last year. So I'd say the book is uh, the main exegetical sections are slightly revised, and then about half the book is completely new. Some people may recognize some different things I've posted on the blog over the years there. So it's definitely not a second edition of that previous book. It's a a brand new book. It has new content, but it is revising some of the exegetical sections. Thankfully, my exegetical conclusions had not changed much except a few tweaks in one or two areas. But it is significant, I think, that In 15 years since the earlier iteration of the book came out, my circumstances have changed and some of the situations in the conservative evangelical church have certainly changed. When I started writing the book, I was in the Reformed Church in America. I was thinking mainly about addressing egalitarians in my denomination, even egalitarians in my church. And I knew that there were men and women who saw these issues differently, and they—I I liked them. They're—they're good people. They were not bad people. They had different conclusions. They looked at scripture differently. So I wanted, as winsomely as gently uh, as clearly as possible, to lay out the case for, lack of a better term, and we'll probably talk about terms in a moment, complementarianism. Uh, so I want to do some of the same things with this book, but now 15 years later. The conversation partners are not all the same, and the challenges to complementarianism are, uh, well, they're still there from egalitarian exegesis, but they've multiplied in different ways. And in some ways, I think maybe conservative evangelicalism is suffering from its own successes in some ways that uh, 15 years ago, it didn't really have TGC, just starting or didn't have T4G that was just starting. You didn't have the same kinds of networks of reformed-ish conservative complementarian. And so now that there's so much of that out there and so many people that would gladly say, yes, this is the jersey I wear. There are a number of debates, not just with those who wear a different jersey, namely egalitarianism, but within those who say, yeah, I, uh, I basically think men should be pastors, men only. Uh, different conversations about what challenges and issues there are. So that's all by way of introduction. Colin, Justin, what do you see or what do you think we need to talk about on this broad topic?
1: Well, Kevin, one of the things that stood out to me about the book is that, and I I think this is a big burden of yours in this project, is that if we're limiting our entire views of men and women to a thin prescription biblically, and we're not trying to address the underlying reasons, sort of the, the way God has made us, then that kind of complementarianism is likely to get blown away. It's too thin. It's too, it's too weak. And certainly I, that's one of the tensions that we've talked about a lot. It's been pretty openly debated for some period of time. And I wondered if you could expand a little bit more on just why you think we need to give more attention there. And I'll give some of my perspective on trying to publish on this topic over the last number of years. I found it very difficult to write and to publish on this subject matter. Um, There's something about people's experiences that makes them very difficult to be able to hear from a different perspective on this. I find it very hard to be able to explain exactly what is the essence of manhood, what is the essence of womanhood. You took a stab at it in here, Kevin, uh, talking about beauty with women and strength for men. You can come back to that as well. I'm interested to hear more of your, your thoughts on that. This is kind of where I've concluded over time of just kind of pounding my head against a wall, trying to publish on these things within a, just an online space and, and not having a lot of success with it, is that for me to understood, understand manhood, I can talk to my dad about that. Um, my grandfathers were good examples for me of manhood. It was something that I was caught, that I caught more than was taught. And what do you think about that, Kevin? I mean, how do we, I mean, you're thinking about this with your own kids, your own church, books, blogs, all that sort of stuff. It just seems like the, the medium makes a big difference. So how did you think about that in writing a book, trying to take a stab at these big questions of like, what is God's natural intent for the differences between the sexes. Um, Because again, I can look at it and I can say, okay, you know, see, I guess another way to put it would be for my dad and and mom, that seemed obvious. They didn't need a book to tell them that or a bunch of online articles, but now it just seems like we're so much more confused um, and it's harder to be able to even explain basic things like that, even though, you know, it's going to like, I know it when I see it.
0: Right. Yeah, you hit on a lot of the most important issues there, and we we are more confused than ever. So let, let me try to hit a few things that you said there. First, you talked about, and, and some people uh, don't like these terms, and I guess I'm somewhat responsible for them maybe, but uh, narrow and broad complementarianism or thick and, and thin. And what what I mean by that simply is I sense that there are a number of people and, and our friends i'm not trying to just create bad guys good guys or girls as the case may be but folks who would say yes i i agree with you exegetically on the conclusion that men should be pastors and elders in the church and that in some broad sense men are the head of the household so those those two things men are the head of the household that's a verse in the Bible, and um, qualified men alone uh, should be elders, pastors in the church, and and that's that's important things to agree on. But as you alluded to, one of my real fundamental concerns is that if we if we don't know the reasons for reaching those conclusions, or if we hold to those conclusions with l- little else by way of application or the underlying apparatus, I think in time, they'll seem arbitrary, capricious. People wonder, well, why why are we kind of holding on to these? And and I do fear at times that people may hold on to those two conclusions because that's basically the feel like the team they're on, the network they're on, the denomination they're on, that they don't want to cross that Rubicon to women's ordination or to women as elders. But beyond that, there's sort of nothing, very little else that seems to be at stake. And so one of the things I want to argue in the book is that those important conclusions are just that they're conclusions that come at the end of a lot of other important theological foundation that God gives us In his word, that we see from beginning to end that it was God's idea to create a two-sexed humanity, male and female. And in at least a a, a human sense of contingency, he didn't have to do that. He could have found some other way to propagate the human race or could have found some other way for fellowship or intimacy. But he chose to do this. So there's something inherent in the way God designed us. And we all were meant to live our Christian life as Christians, but as male Christians, as female Christians. And what does that mean? And you hit on something really important, Colin, that it used to seem more normal. It used to seem more obvious. Now, here's the, the danger that we all recognize. Some of those things that maybe our parents or grandparents' generation just assumed weren't always in the Bible and couldn't be shown from specific texts that the man is the one who has to fix the car. He deals with stuff outside The woman, you know, cooks the meals or does the dishes and deals with stuff inside the house. Uh, So there are certain stereotypes of manhood and womanhood that we want to be careful that we don't try to read back into scripture. And yet if we say well, there's really nothing there there there's nothing to it that that being a man or being a woman, you know, it doesn't really have to say anything to do with how you might conduct yourselves in the home or who might do what sort of work. Um, you know as soon as you get to the applications where people in our day get really, really nervous, and I get that, I get nervous too. And yet if there's no application to it, What are we really saying? And is there anything to manhood and womanhood? So I'm wanting people to step back and say Is there something ontologically, biologically, physiologically, maybe even emotionally, psychologically different about manhood, about being a man and being a woman that is by God's design? And with appropriate flexibility ought to have some practical working out in life. So one of the words I use in one of the chapters is posture, the posture of manhood, the posture of womanhood. And I use that term intentionally because I don't mean a a rigid form that it's always going to look like this, but there is a certain posture, the certain leaning in toward certain realities. And more and more, especially people are younger than us are going to be very allergic to any of this. I'm, you know, just one quick illustration that shows the inanity of Twitter. I posted something last Saturday.
1: I was going to ask about this,
0: Kevin. I didn't know how to bring it up. So I, d- I, do, I do my own. I wash my own clothes. Now, my wife doesn't ask me to do that. She does the others. Um, in fact, she wishes I didn't do it because she doesn't think I do a very good job. She thinks the clothes still have sort of like athletic stink in them and I'm not doing things <laughs> well, but partly to help out, partly so I can get this stuff clean when I want. I do it. So I was doing a lot, my load of laundry last week and I was, oh, this doesn't look right. I poured in fabric softener. I started looking, this seems kind of thin. This doesn't seem normal. And I looked at it. I don't think this is the same thing actually as detergent. I went and found whatever Tide or something. and I just put that in over all the fabric softener I'd already put in. And uh turned out the clothes smelled really, really fabric softener-y. <laughs> and uh, a woman actually came up to me in church the next Sunday. She said, did you really do that, Pastor? I said, I really did do that. Well, you probably had to wash all the clothes. Nah, I just lived with it. We'll wash them again next week when <laughs> we get to it. So Thankfully, I, everybody's
2: wearing masks, right?
0: Well, yeah, that's <laughs> right. They don't have to. So I tweeted something. Hey, guys or husbands, just word to the wise, fabric softener is not the same as detergent. Entirely a joke at my own expense, entirely pointing fun at myself. And the response from some was, how dare you? That was addressed to husbands as if it's assumed that they wouldn't be doing the laundry and all sorts of testimonials. The best thing I ever did for my sons is I taught them to do the laundry and praise God for my mom who taught them to do the laundry. And it, in, um, it should be 50 50. I think I, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody what to do with your laundry or how to do it. And uh, I made a joke and that's how, how sensitive we are to these things. And, the reality is, and you can see studies, it especially in Christian homes, but even in non-Christian, it's still the case that the wives are mostly doing the laundry. If you think that's normal, if you think that's good, bad, oppressive, or other, it, it's there, and actually, it can be a little bit offensive to wives and women to act as if every bit of housework they do is oppressive to them. Um, That they haven't worked out whatever arrangement works well with their husband, and that if they were truly enlightened and truly liberated, they wouldn't be doing these things. So, yes, um, anything you say on Twitter can and will be used <laughs> against you.
2: Justin? I regret critiquing you for that tweet, Kevin. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so... Going back to the thin complementarians, I'm not a thin complementarian in any sense of the word. (laughs) (laughs) uh, If if you can, if you only know me from my voice, maybe that joke will pass you by. Um, So we want to be. I'm the thinnest
0: complementarian on this (laughs) podcast. You are. It's quite true. (laughs)
2: Um, Okay, what was my point? So we want to be fair to the thin complementarians, right? The the narrow complementarians. I have never heard a good answer from them on the why question. Why did God, you know, they, they affirm that only ordained qualified men should be office holders in the church. But that question of why, what what is the fundamental difference? Praise God that they they do hold to that biblical truth. But I've never been able to discern how it's not a similar case to God arbitrarily, decreed that redhead people should be elders and blondes and brunettes shouldn't be. Have you heard a good answer to that? Uh, or is that just me not looking carefully enough or asking enough people?
0: That's a good question. I'm, I'm trying to think what, what someone, uh, you know, we have friends who would, you know, be in that camp, whether they would use that language or not. I, I think they might say, well, Justin, it's, it's, not that I deny that there are real differences, but if you go beyond that, you're adding to scripture because scripture doesn't spell spell that out. And 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 then they'd probably go to, you know, the the infamous sort of a woman shouldn't be a mailman or you know sort of things that have been said out in cyberspace. So I, I think you're right. Um and the other question, and I talk about this in the book, and, and Piper's been good to bring up this question is what is the answer to the question, mommy, daddy, what does it mean to be a man? You know, what does it mean to be a woman? I mean, do you, that's, that's, that is the sort of question a child can ask and often do. And you say, well, it means that mommies have babies often. You know, that's even countercultural today. I mean, you can't even say that, but you have to say that to be biblical. But I would hope we would say more than, than that, or, well, to be a man means you can be a pastor. To be a woman means you can have a baby, but you can't be a pastor. I, I, I think scripture gives us more than that. And part of what the difficulty is, and I I think I hit on these three words in my chapter on the Old Testament, is we need to distinguish between prescriptions, principles, and patterns. And at the one end, maybe there are some complementarians who have looked at patterns in the Bible or principles, and then they've made them ironclad prescriptions. You can't do that. Or a woman can't work outside the home. Or Now that's a problem, but there's there's a danger in the other direction too. And that's saying, unless you give me a prescription, unless there is a statement from Paul saying, women don't do this, men don't do that, um, men wear these kinds of clothes, not those kind of clothes, then we can't say anything else. But that's not a, a real fair way to look at scripture either. When We are meant to notice all sorts of principles and patterns that we see of how men and women relate to each other, how they relate in leadership, how they relate to the family. And so, uh, you know, one of the, the patterns I draw from the Old Testament, you, know, you look at the opening chapters of Exodus, and you have the, this grand story of redemption, really maybe the central event in the Old Testament, the liberation and redemption from slavery in Egypt. And those opening chapters in Exodus, that whole story is driven forward by women seeking to care for and protect children. Shifra and Pua, the midwives protecting the children. You have Moses' mom and Miriam, of course, trailing behind to try to find safety for Moses not to be killed. And then you have. Pharaoh's daughter who takes in Moses. So you have people of different ages, different social standing, some even outside the covenant community. And you have clearly the story is dr- now that's not a prescription. Women must work with children. Women must work in the nursery. Men cannot work in the nursery, but there is an important pattern there and something that's worth celebrating. Something that's worth celebrating in the work that women do. Uh, you know, one of the one of the the readers of the book, and she provided blurb is uh, Abigail Dodds, and uh, Abigail wrote on her blog was it yesterday about uh, being in the yeah. ICU with I her see. with her son. So right. you uh, think of it, we be praying for her and for her family. She made a very uh, good comment to me reading through it, she said, why is it that complementarians sometimes, and they get very nervous, but they just talk about, well, men and women, here's all the things they can do, but complementarian is basically men and women, they each can do 100, you know, they can, men can do 100 things and women can do 99 things. And, you know, they just, women can't be elders or something. He says, what about the things that women can do that men can't do? And chief among those is give birth to a child, know the joys of motherhood. And again, not everyone will experience that, but but most women will, or nursing or incubating human life. You wanna talk about which sex has an unimaginable privilege. You say, well, you know, that's sexist you don't know how much it, yeah i don't know how much it hurts okay i'm not i'm not minimizing the the effect of the curse but it is something to be celebrated and if we get to a point in the church where we can't celebrate moms being moms and the high calling of motherhood then we've i mean we've completely lost what any sort of healthy complementarianism should be like
1: one follow up on the on the thin side, I do think you, you got to the heart of the matter, Justin, with the question of, is it because the Bible doesn't say as much as we might expect? And I think you talk about that in the book, don't you, Kevin, about how the Bible doesn't say as much as you might expect about exactly what this looks like. But when we come to that hermeneutical principle why, of, of the Bible's silence, it could lead us in a few different directions— I'm wondering, Kevin, which direction you think this might lead us in. It could lead us in that direction to say the Bible doesn't say more because God wanted to give us flexibility. You know, cultural flexibility. That's one of the strengths of Christianity. It was cultural flexibility. That's one option. Another option is because it was so obvious, um, it didn't have to be explained in, the, in that culture. That's what we often hear about uh, Jesus talking about homosexuality. As an example, why would Jesus talk about this so much? Because he already said he upheld the law, he fulfilled the law, and we know what the Bible says. We know what the law says about homosexuality. Another option could be, because as we try to go from why it was so obvious at that time to today, it's interesting how many things have changed dramatically. And so, for example, I think... I don't know how you're not going to get much disagreement that the biggest discernible difference between men and women is the difference in strength. Now, it's not every man to every woman. We know that we're just talking about the aggregate. And I I wonder if we've lost touch a little bit with how common, like how often those forms of strength were needed, not just for men, also for women, but especially for men. How many vocations that men pursued would not have required Quite a bit of physical strength and stamina. Anything from farming to war. Let's just take those two as examples, right there. Now, how many? How essential is it to be a man, or at least to be a lot stronger, to be a farmer? Way less than it used to be. Um, there are way fewer examples of that where that would make a big difference. War would be another example. Given how much warfare now is is fought through drones or airplanes or ships or things like that, missiles, things that in many cases a man and a woman can easily do. They're not dependent on physical strength. Well, that would explain some of why our situation is so different because the many differences or the main physical difference is really mitigated by our technological transformations in there. So I guess going back, Kevin, what direction might you you point us in there of is it thin because it was trying to give us flexibility to work that out ourselves, or it was thin because, I mean, back then it was so obvious, but of course, if we go that route, in some ways, it definitely is not as obvious anymore because of just some, some basic technological changes.
0: Yeah, and that's a really good question. I'd have to think if I'd want to side with one or other of those expectations. Yeah, you can, you
1: can go a whole different route. I'm just giving, those are the options uh, that I, I think. I,
0: no, me. but I, I certainly think... I mean, certainly we know that things were obvious in a way that they aren't now, and certain patterns and certain ways of doing things could be assumed. And we do want to always be careful not to go beyond scripture, but we also want to be careful that in our own cultural moment, we aren't trying to read out of scripture uh, certain patterns and principles that, that be there. You, I mean, you, you raise a great point that, the the most obvious immediate difference between men and women is what you said, biological, physical strength. And the need for that is, has never been less right. in human history. And so the, the differences between men and women have in many ways seem to have been uh, reduced, eliminated, mitigated uh, that, if you if you don't have to have brute force to carry out certain things, then um, how important is masculinity and femininity? To that, however, I would make a couple of arguments. One is that it, even though it's often in the name of feminism or in the name of women's equality, I think what we so often see in cultural narratives, movies, uh, is the the, a woman's valor is pitched in terms of masculine virtues. I mean it's the the kick you know what heroine in a movie who could you know doesn't matter you know how thin she is and she can still absolutely get in there and with the best guy can crack your neck can go in there. She can be as bad and as tough and as rough as any man. Those are, that's the strong woman. That's the, the, the heroine when we so rarely see. And uh, I think, you know, uh, others have made the same point, but we so rarely see a, a movie where a strong woman is sacrificing, for a child, is a nurse in an ICU unit, is uh, loving in ways that show great self-sacrifice. In other words, what we might typically associate with more feminine virtues of self-sacrifice, communal gathering, those sorts of strengths. I would also say in, you know, anytime you talk about this whole subject, you, you know, People are are not going to like everything you say, but I think it's the fact that once (laughs) men and women will be different, they are different, and when we bring men and women together in certain circumstances, there is, on the one hand, a great sanctifying effect that women can have on men. So I think marriage is a very good thing. We know Jesus was single, so it's not absolute, all of that, but it's a very good thing. I think there is something that God means when he puts a man in marriage and when he gives him the blessing of children, that they're meant a man is meant to be in a healthy way, sanctified, domesticated, that having to love and provide and protect a wife and care for child is supposed to be a good governor upon the worst sort of masculine instincts. On the other hand, I would I would say this will sound out uh, let just put it boldly. I think when for example, you have women become elders in a church, I think the male elders stop acting like elders. I think the nature of eldership changes. I think it, it because women are different, and even godly women who who come into that and uh, bring Christian virtues to bear think they are different. And I think men are are men are wired to act differently around women. And we tend to guard ourselves more. We tend to be less aggressive. and that's a that's a good thing. that's that's how that's how God made us. And yet, then maybe there is a reason why Having some female-only spaces, some male-only spaces, is healthy, and so I would argue that uh, the, the the internet has has just further precipitated all of this. I I'll be so bold as to say, in general, you see men and women often arguing differently on the internet. They make their sort of arguments in different ways. They argue with different sort of emotive force they argue with uh, either less or more drawing from personal experiences they argue more or less appealing to personal suffering men and women argue things differently they wield power differently and when we pretend those differences aren't there we we not only don't do justice to god's design but we end up hurting both men and women and we lead to less healthy churches and less healthy homes.
1: I'll be quick on this one, Justin. I want to follow up, Kevin, on the men stop acting like uh, elders question there. Um, I wondered, I mean, a lot of your background of this book, you you talked about writing your first draft in 2003, 2004, and you were in the RCA pretty young. This is something that you saw in that denomination, I'm assuming?
0: Yeah, and and, you know, I have people that I love and care for, who differ with me on this and, um, friends or family, women who are ordained. And so I do always speak respectfully, but yeah, I, I, I think there, there is a, a difference and I think there's a, a difference too. You know, one of the differences sometimes between thin and thick complementarian is, is what is an appropriate role for a woman, you know, to be addressing men and on the one hand, we say, well, of course, I, I don't want to say it's wrong for a man to learn from a woman. No, Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos in all sorts of contexts, all sorts of uh, nuances. And yet, I would argue that whatever you say about complementarianism, if um, you are sitting there cheering on as a woman berates the men in the audience. I think you've you've given up something of complementarianism already, and so I, I there are inherent differences in men and women that no matter what we do, no matter what our theology says, our social engineering does, they will be there and they will find ways to come out. And so I think the Bible gives us ways to have them come out. In healthy ways, and we'll get to in a moment where complementarianism maybe hasn't been healthy, but that's the aim, and to pretend like we can do away with the differences will not, in the end, be possible. Justin,
2: yeah. So let me ask a two-part question. They're two very different questions, but it starts to kind of critique to the right a, a little bit. Uh, you know, we've we've critiqued the egalitarians, we've critiqued the thing complementarians, and we all know thick complementarians who can be thick headed. (laughs) Yes. Be thick in all senses of the word. Uh, Are there some ideas that you hear theological ideas from fellow complementarians that make you cringe? And are there and or are there postures perhaps where you might agree theologically, but the, the EQ, for lack of a better word, is off kilter?
0: So this gets to what's really, you know, difficult about this topic, and you hit on it. Do we, do we think the challenges to complementarianism are mainly inside or outside of the movement? And again, it's it's inevitably both, and it depends on where you live and what you see and how you grew up and your own experiences on whether you tend to think it's one or the other. So, I think we need to talk about the the unhealthy sort of feminism we need to certainly talk about the movement of sexual liberation and how trans ideology undermines differentiation all of those sort of outside secularizing liberalizing forces but you're right Justin and there would be many of our friends who would say really that's those aren't those don't seem to be the the big issues the big issues are the things that we see in our complementarian churches whether it's toxic masculinity, it's abuse. And so to your, so we have to acknowledge that these things are there. And if someone, a man or a woman says, well, Kevin, here's what I grew up with. Here's what I saw. Here's what happened to me. I mean, my first posture is going to be to believe what they're telling me. And if it's an awful story, say that's awful. That's not what complementarianism should be. So to briefly answer your question what what might be some ideas or postures that seem unhealthy among thick thick-headed complementarianisms um i i would say a a hyper testosterone yay let's everything is turned up the volume to 11 in everything is men go out and have your Winston Churchill moment to fight them on the beaches and go out. And yeah, that's called for at times. And that is an expression, I think, of masculine courage and protection. But if that's the only mode, so that's one. I I mean, I think related to that is the flip side of what we are talking about earlier. And that's when there are, rigid stereotypes or when when complementarians want to be overly prescriptive uh and to say well you know real men don't wear pink polos come on well no you 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 can't make that sort of statement and yet there's something to what Paul's saying in 1st Corinthians 11 that dress does show something about our by gendered identity, either male or female. And so we can't completely say what you wear is irrelevant. And we have to deal with the cultural cues that tell us what sort of things are associated with manhood or womanhood. And so if, you know, one of my sons wanted to wear a pink shirt, that wouldn't be the end of the world. And I wouldn't say, well, you can't ever do that. It's not what men do. And on the other hand, if everything he wanted to wear was pink or frilly or, or I mean, you, I, I would want to talk to him about what, what, what's going on, what, what's going on and what, what what are you thinking here and have a, an, an honest heart to heart about that. So I think there are certain postures which are unhealthy. And then the last thing, and I'm interested, Justin or Colin, how you'd answer that that question. I think so often... I, actually, I don't know how often, but I'm sure there are the kind of clueless pastors who have, as you said, Justin, a, a low EQ, emotional quotient. You know, we hear a lot recently about the sort of mindset that says women are are just temptations. They're all just Potiphar's wife, and you can't talk to women. And you, I, boy, I hope I've I don't think I've done that. Uh, th- there's something healthy in the Billy Graham rule there's something healthy in you know i'm i'm going to text if i have a te- to text you back and forth about a bunch of things i may copy your husband on it that that doesn't seem to be a bad idea my my wife is my wife's never come to me and says you know what really makes me upset is um you don't you don't talk privately with more women you don't email privately with more women you don't text privately with more women I feel really demeaned. No, I I think she doesn't. Uh but there are those pastors who seem so terribly awkward around women who never learned how to talk. I mean, they may even be married and it's always at arm's length. It's always in a you know, they they may not even mean to be demeaning. Um they may not be sensitive to the fact in a, in a church that if you have a a woman on your staff, she's very likely to be the only one or one of very few. And if you're not at least aware of that dynamic, that that often can be hurtful to women. So I would guess in the rank and file complementarian churches, yes, there's the horrible stories about which we hear too often. But I would guess it, it's more the sort of clumsy awkward, low EQ sort of moments that would be there anyways, but then if you superimpose upon that, this is what complementarianism is about, either because the pastor did that or the woman received it that way, then it feels really unhealthy. Justin, how would you answer your own question there?
2: Yeah, I, I think I would answer real similarly to what you did, that i think it it takes place in the race discussion as well as the gender and sex discussion when it comes to eq and it's one of those things that you can kind of uh, you know it when you see it although it can potentially be difficult to define just there are some people who are not inclined towards sensitivity who like to rub certain truths in people's face who don't include nuance, who don't want to listen. And I I think this is one of those areas, the theological truths are eternal and uh, beautiful, but we do bring experience to the table. So if I'm talking to somebody, it makes a difference if you grew up in Bill Gothard land uh, versus growing up in some very different sort of Uh, progressive, permissive, cultural situation. So so we bring our own experiences to the table. And I think part of just being a good Christian, not a good man, a good woman, a good Christian is to be a good listener, is to want to learn more, to hear people, to be sensitive to what their fears and suspicions might be without just taking certain prescriptions and principles and sort of using them as a hammer and, and seeing Liberalism everywhere. And just the only solution to that is uh, wield the hammer and uh, let the truth drop on whoever is on the other side of it.
0: Yeah. Just say two things that real quick. I completely agree. So it, maybe uh, pushing to our folks on, on the right, I would just underline what you said there, Justin. Uh, a, oftentimes, a, a little bit of humility, a little bit of question, listening. That sounds awful. I'm sorry. Can really go a long way. I mean, it, and and it's not. You don't want to do it. Pandering. You don't want to do it. It's not manipulating. But to really mean it, and it's true. You said both with race discussions and with gender discussions, uh, especially if you're the the person who's been considered the one to have power, to to have that posture that says, "Tell me more about that." That sounds really bad. I'm really sorry. I I, I bet that happened and was even worse than you can describe now. That goes a long way. My pushing to our folks on the left, and I think you would all agree with this, both of you, is that we have to come back. It sounds so simple, but we have to interpret our experiences through the Bible, not the Bible through our experiences. And I I do feel like in, you know, internet discourse just encourages these bad behaviors that it's often an emotion in search of a rationalization it's a personal narrative in search of some intellectual framework that can give some illusion of really hard one rational thinking and so we don't discount people's experiences we don't discount especially people who have grown up in very unhealthy environments and uh, lack of father, bad husband, bad pastor, abusive situations. And the challenge is always to let scripture interpret those experiences, not have those experiences dictate for us. Then here's what the Bible must be saying. So when I see what seems to be an avalanche of new books coming out uh, in one way or another, going after patriarchy they would call it and we could talk about that patriarchy if you define it one way you know father rule is a very biblical thing in another way all of the cultural connotations is something ugly but the the argument is is at least now doesn't seem to be so much here are the exegetical points that you're failing on let's let's do a massive word search on kephale Let's look at Authentane and let's try to figure out how Greek infinitives work. But it's some mix of history, personal narrative, cultural analysis, all of which comes to the conclusion, and I might say the conclusion was already there, but comes to the conclusion this whole thing that you conservative, evangelical, complementarian people are doing. Is uh, we're not even gonna look at is are your how do you understand your own views and are they biblical? But the whole thing you're about is evil, toxic, denigrating to women, and politically inflammatory. And so it's a it's a very different kind of argument. And I, I'd love to hear, well, I'll go to Colin and then Justin. I want you to just say something about that blog post that you re-upped again on the conundrum of complementarian publishing and the challenge there. But anything to add to this, Colin?
1: I wonder if, Kevin, we could trace that mode of discourse to Matthew Vine's work on homosexuality and the conclusion of Bad Fruit, Um, that more or less it's not so much what the Bible says as what it's supposed to produce there. And it's not hard to go through history or today to find examples of people who are doing this poorly, um, especially on the other side of your view. So if you're egalitarian or even beyond that, gay affirming is pretty easy to find examples. And then you can just string together a series of bad examples that seem to form this clear, unimpeachable narrative that shows that, well, I mean, only a monster would ever believe this. Um, it, it strikes me, i um, I've been trying to hold two things in my head lately. We published at the Gospel Coalition recently, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin from uh, her new book, The Secular Creed, with the Gospel Coalition, writing about uh, how pro-woman Jesus was. And one of the common critiques you get is, yeah, so amazing that it only took 2,000 years for any of it to actually, you know, happen you know, Jesus was so pro-woman, and then for 2,000 years, the church was totally oppressive toward women, and then now all of a sudden, it's great. That's the argument that you hear. Which is
0: manifestly not true.
1: It's not, but, you know, again, this is the way way TikTok apologetics is working these days. Um, But I do think at some level, we're trying to reconcile the beauty of what the Bible holds up, and the promise of what the Bible holds up, with the reality in some ways of history and the difficult application of it. So I'm reading through Barbara Tuckman talking about the 14th century. And, you know, her overall view is that the church's view on sexuality was inherently oppressive, but still some of the things she draws out about the medieval church's view toward women is plainly unbiblical. It cannot be defense. It cannot be defended by the most ardent complimentarian today, Or I'm watching uh, the BBC adaptation of war and peace last night. And, One of the characters, a father, is just completely misogynistic toward his daughter, just absolutely horrible toward his daughter. And we know that those things, I mean, a a view of just actual female inferiority in those cases. And so it seems like we're trying to deal with this. The Bible holds up something really beautiful, but people really make a mess of it in this world. And I want to point out that I've never seen this. Being a complementarian versus an egalitarian thing, and I don't know how either side could feel real great about making an experiential argument these days. Um, I mean, it's just if you want to, if you want to go find examples of complementarians doing bad things toward women, they're out there. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to ask you about Bill Hybels, and I'm going to say, okay, well, so Bill Hybels is one of the most staunch advocates. Of women, supposedly, in evangelicalism, and secretly he's doing something very different. Very different story there. It just seems that we've got to dial back the experiential narratives and try to lift up the biblical hope and try to live that try to live that out. And again, I believe the complementarian way of doing that is the best way to do it. But there is something about complementarianism where when I fail to do what God calls me to do toward my wife, to love my wife as Christ loved the church, it seems to hurt more. It seems to hurt her more. It seems to hurt me more. Because of the beautiful promise of what it holds out, when I fall short of that, when I sin, when I don't live that out, it seems to breed a certain kind of disappointment. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if that's, Kevin, a lot of what's behind a lot of this trend that we're seeing is that complementarism holds out a pretty beautiful thing, pretty beautiful thing, but when it falls short, it gets pretty ugly fast,
0: yeah, two two quick thoughts and throw back to Justin. But one, your point about history and how we tell history is exactly right. If the danger used to be hagiography, meaning we we tell our history as nothing but saints. The danger now is hamartiography, which is we tell the history as nothing but sinners. Now we don't usually tell our own history, although sometimes we do. It and and again that goes to race too. Uh, We're right; it's right to to be to have it brought to our attention that white American Christians over the history of this country, by and large, on the race issue, got things wrong to different degrees. But that's not really fair history either, nor is it a fair way to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our dead neighbors also ought to be loved as we would want to be loved someday. To reduce people to the one thing that our culture prizes most, that they got most wrong, without any benefit of context, without the benefit of the doubt, without weighing against other options or other manifestations. And so just on this issue of gender and sexuality, it's all too easy. Take anything and give me 50 years to pick bad examples, bad statements, when what would really be more scientifically plausible, though can't really be done, is to say, well, what did the alternative produce? Did the alternative idea produce something much better? Or if those are the bad examples, what about the hundreds of thousands of millions of people over these decades who have lived with these ideas and produced much good fruit in their homes, in their marriages, in their churches? But we're always that bad news always makes news. And it's not to discount it. I mean, we we need to see history warts and all but now we have people telling history warts and nothing else and your warts not mine your 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 problems your side and the more monocausal almost the the more difficult it is to try to disprove because you just take one big idea you trace it with all of the whatever bad examples you can find, and therefore that equals this. So that that's one thing. Second is, I hope our listeners understand, I hope my children understand, I hope our, ch- our churches understand. As much as we might want to not deal with issues of gender and sexuality, we cannot avoid them and be faithful in, in, in this country and in the Western world. How often have I wished... I could be back in the 16th century where it was justification, or back in some other century where the reason that empires were against one another was homoousion, was Christ of the same nature with the Father. But you know, that's only because from a historical distance, those seem like rather safe intellectual theological debates, but in the moment, in the time, they felt just as divisive, just as explosive, just as absolutely combustible as these issues are. So we cannot ignore issues of sex and gender and be faithful in this cultural moment. And we might wish that we had something else, and there will be many other things we should talk about, but this is one that we can't avoid. Justin, anything to piggyback on that or to go back to uh, the question I asked 10 minutes ago about the the conundrum for complementarians writing on this issue?
2: Yeah, I'll I'll just say something briefly that your little uh, Jeremiah there warmed (laughs) my historiographical heart. Uh, I mean, it really is lamentable that we have professional historians trained at the highest level who are teaching graduate students in historiography who are doing really bad methodological history that is unfair, that is not uh, even attempting to be fair, that's using history as a weapon. So I agree with you completely. And I think the three of us uh, who all love history want to see honest history. If that makes us look bad, it makes us look bad. Let's just be honest. Let's get the facts yeah. out there. Let's look at this from all sides and not just use it as a weapon against those mean people that we, we don't like.
0: The, the repugnant cultural other. Exactly.
2: Yep. Yeah. You, so you've asked a couple of times about this blog post that is I re-up it every once in a while. And it's from Tom Schreiner, New Testament professor at Southern Seminary. It's almost 20 years ago now that he wrote this. But he said, sometimes I wonder if egalitarians hope to triumph in the debate on the role of women by publishing book after book on the subject. Each work propounds a new thesis, which explains why the traditional interpretation is flawed. Complementarians could easily give in from sheer exhaustion, thinking that so many books written by such a diversity of different authors could scarcely be wrong. Further, it's difficult to keep writing books promoting the complementarian view. Our view of the biblical text has not changed dramatically in the last 25 years. Should we continue to write books that essentially promote traditional interpretations? Is the goal of publishing to write what is true or what is new? One of the dangers of evangelical publishing is the desire to say something novel. Our evangelical publishing houses could end up like those in Athens long ago who used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new, quoting Acts 17. Twenty-one, And I I do think that is a really significant insight that the complementarians in in terms of exegesis say uh, still haven't changed our minds. We have not been persuaded that the text means something different than what it looks like it means. But how can you keep saying that year after year after year where the Galatians can always propose something novel, some new twist, some new insight, some way that we've all missed things? I think what uh, strikes me is that egalitarians, by and large, the most popular books, don't even feel like they're trying to make the biblical case anymore. It's just so blindingly obvious that these people are bearing bad fruit. And therefore, no matter what the text means, it cannot mean that. Um, so I'm thankful, Kevin, in light of that kind of gloom and doom report that you have written this book, because I think that you do have a unique voice and insight. And we do need to go back to the text to go back to say, what what does the word of God say? Is it open to interpretation? Is it clear? Is, is there a compelling reason beneath it? And then to give people some practical helps, not just, you know, how do we parse this particular word? But uh, it is one of those issues that you have to make a decision. Uh, if you didn't belong to a church and you just uh, could kind of, uh, debate it theoretically. If you're involved in a church, you have to make a decision of, of do you have women who are elders or not? How do you treat women in the church? Uh, there is no perpetual sitting on the fence with this issue. So I'm really grateful you've written the book.
0: Well, I'll use that as our segue to wrap things up. Uh, well, I'm mentioning my own book, Men and Women in the Church, a short biblical practical introduction. It is all of those three things. It's only... Uh, 150 pages of text. The first part goes through biblical exploration, part two questions and application. I say at the beginning, I I want this to be a meat and potatoes book, not a fire hot salsa book. So this is, it's conversant and aware of some of the current issues that are out there, but it's not a book going to set the record straight on everybody else who I think is is wrong. It's it's I really hope a non-angsty kind of book. I wanted to be contemporary enough that hey, it speaks into our moment, but I didn't want it to be the sort of book that three years from now you say, ah, oh, nobody's reading that other book anymore or those blog posts don't matter anymore. So I uh, I would love for this to be a book that people on the church bookstall can pick up, um, a Bible study, a college student, a high school student could say, Hey, I I wanna Read something that's pretty short, accessible, but hopefully learned. So that, that's what I've tried to do. And I just piggyback on your exhortation there, Justin, to go back to the text. If I know evangelical people want to give up on the term, and, and I understand some reasons why, but if that term has any historical value, we, we have to be the people who are going back to the text. Uh, that was the Reformation slogan, Ad Fontes, back to the sources. Let's go back. Let's always go back and see what the scripture says about this, that the Bible can shape who we are. The Bible can interpret our own experience. And then I, I think as we come to these convictions, and maybe most of the listeners here share these complementarian convictions, my pastoral exhortation is to be, to be fearless and to be happy. Uh, if happy sounds too bad, then joyful is a Good biblical word, but to be fearless, not apologetic, but th- there is something very uh, jarring to people when you hold these sort of views in a way that's happy and healthy and joyful and willing to make light of yourself and admit your own faults and you know, especially to the men out there, lay down your life to to love and sacrifice for your wife and to if you have the the privilege of raising children to raise them as best you can to be men and women after god's own heart so thank you brothers and uh lord willing we'll see each other in person the gospel coalition next week and looking forward to that and uh we'll hopefully talk about some more books so until next time hope you will glorify god and him forever and read a good book